Before we begin, a brief message from this episode's sponsor. Panacea Financial provides banking for doctors because it was founded by doctors. They offer nationwide loan, checking, and savings options designed specifically for doctors and doctors in training. Their specialized suite of financial products gives medical students, residents, and doctors greater freedom to forge their futures at affordable rates. By reducing financial barriers and burdens, Panacea Financial ensures that all doctors have an increased capacity to serve their patients and the population at large. Do you need a good home for your banking needs? Go to PanaceaFinancial.com. That's PanaceaFinancial.com to get started. Panacea Financial is a division of Primus, member FDIC. You know, I'm not insensitive to the challenge doctors have with being on call and doing nothing um, and potentially not getting paid, waiting around for something to come in um, and or the tension between having to wait around and actually engaging in productive work. Um, and it it's even more of a challenge if the doctor has to be on call frequently. If the doctor is only on call for one day a month, then you can see it's not that difficult to give up that day and just be at the beck and call of the ER doctor waiting waiting by the phone. If, on the other hand, you're on call every third or fourth night, um, that's a significant dip into your income, potentially, unless it's made up by a stipend given to you by the hospital. I know over the years, hospitals, and they all treat this differently, have decided to pay some doctors some stipend just to be available. Some of these facilities will bill on their own and they just pay you for being available. They're paying you for your time. Others will are paying for you to be on retainer just to be on call. And if the patient comes in and they do happen to have um, insurance or third excuse me, third-party reimbursement, let you bill separately. And others basically say, look, if you want privileges to operate in our facility, you just need to take call. Um, it's an honor to take call. You just need to do it. And we're not going to pay you anything to do it. Um, I've seen all of these models that are out there. I think the ones that are the most successful uh, are the ones that truly have staff that are available. And if you want people to be available, in my estimation, you have to pay them. What do you think? I think it's only fair, right? I mean, you're taking someone's time and very valuable time at that, right? We're, we're talking about highly skilled people and to have them available when you want to do what is needed uh, seems to me to come, to come at a cost. Uh, particularly in underserved areas where you don't have, and I'll use neurosurgeons as an example, but let's say you only have three neurosurgeons total in a community that has a draw area of a quarter of a million people. Um, 
in, and the ER is busy and they want a neurosurgeon available to handle as many things as they can handle. Um, I think it's patently unfair to tell each of those neurosurgeons you have to be on call every third night um, and just be waiting by the phone for something to come in. And by the way, if someone does come in and they don't have insurance, uh, too bad. You're you're doing you know society a favor. I, I don't think that's realistic. I think if you have 25 neurosurgeons in that community, which is also unrealistic, but if you have 25 and you're just asking them to give up one day a month, that's a different conversation. But to ask someone to potentially give up a third of their income and play the lottery and see if you are reimbursed for uh, patients that you take care of, I think that's a bit much to ask. And, and I do think the hospitals that want an active emergency room, that want to take care of trauma, that have the bona fides to do it and want to be seen in the region as a center of excellence and a draw area, have already figured this out. They know if you want talented people, you have to pay them. And some of them, they pay to actually stay there and do nothing else. That is, that is the discussion. Others have figured out, well, we can... Um, as a group, we'll take care of it. We'll handle the situation and we'll triage it internally. So they have first, second, and even third call and everybody checks in and checks out so that you don't end up with a scenario just like this where they're waiting, 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 and nothing's available. Yeah, let's, let's not pretend to be concerned about physician burnout and then say you have to be available every third or fourth night, right? For no compensation whatsoever. Um, I've, I've seen that argument, quite honestly, from different hospital administrations, and it, it seems disingenuous to me. Uh, I, I would agree, and I think this is precisely a formula for burnout where you tell people that they have to show up, they have to be available at all times, and we're not even going to say thank you by making uh, call pay uh, available. This is uh, pretty interesting. Now, the other question that I find, um, I guess, an interesting corollary to this what if the the doctor was taking care of a trauma patient? Here you've got the trauma surgeon on call, and he was in the operating room taking care of a trauma patient, um, and then this patient shows up. What, what do you do then? Um, I'm going to take an educated guess that he probably would have been okay. I think he should have given a reasonable estimate as to how long he likely would be in the operating room um, and out of commission so he wouldn't have to make this other patient wait. But I don't think you would have seen a $30 million judgment if he was taking care of a trauma patient as opposed to an elective hernia patient. I, I agree 100% with that. I also think that there would have been better coordination between the trauma surgeon and the, the ER if there was a previous patient that had had trauma and had come through the ER, right? I mean, what we have in this scenario is elective cases that the ER doesn't doesn't know about and is finding out about on, on the fly. I think that they would know that their their trauma surgeon is busy with the patient that they just processed on on through and may well have uh, had the patient rerouted in in course, right? Knowing that the, the surgeon is already occupied with another uh, trauma patient. So let's talk about $30 million. Let's just talk about what that looks like as a judgment. What are the options a doctor has if they hear from the jury, you have a problem, we find you liable, that tune is $30 million. 
And that's that's all we know about this particular case. I don't know anything else about it, but what are the options available to that doctor? And what are some options to think about in advance should a doctor find themselves in that ugly situation a number of years down the road through no fault of their own? Well, it, it often depends upon what what state you're in. I, I, we're, we're talking about a place where there's no cap. So we have real real concerns about being exposed for the full the full judgment. But so talk about what a cap might look like. Let's assume that and you practice in Indiana. Indiana has a cap. I can't recall what it is now. What one and a quarter million what, what, is that right? It, it's been elevated. One point five um, million is is the cap. So no matter what has has happened, uh, a patient or uh, their estate is not able to receive more than one point um, five million dollars uh, and under Indiana law and other states have have caps as well some states have none whatsoever a cap is nice because you know what your upper limit of liability is and you can insure to that point mm -hmm. so you don't have any risk of personal assets being um, being in jeopardy and, and here that's what I think we have with the physician in in Alabama is personal assets being on the line because uh, I think we'd all agree that there's no $30 million worth of uh, coverage on, on behalf of the surgeon. Well, let's talk for a second about the different types of caps. In Indiana, you've got a global cap that includes everything. That would be lost wages, medical bills, and pain and suffering. In other states, for example, Texas and California, you have a $250,000 cap in a limited um, domain, namely pain and suffering, or non they're called non-economic damages. So if you got a $30 million judgment in California, you'd have to see how it would break down. If it broke down as $29 million for pain and suffering, that $29 million would be cut to $250,000 because it was line-itemed as non-economic damages or pain and suffering. If on the other hand, it's a patient who, let's just say they became a quadriplegic and have a life care plan um, over the next 40 to 50 years of $29 million. Um, and then just let's, let's say it was $250,000 of pain and suffering, that full verdict is going to hit and it's going to sting quite hard. So in some states, it really depends upon how the verdict is rendered, what the line items look like in there, and what the specific caps are. Are they global caps? Are there no caps? Or are there caps just on pain and suffering? It's ex exactly, exactly right. Now, there are other options. Um, just because a person gets a verdict like this, um, it may be appropriate to appeal. It may be, um, uh, there may be a number of situations where the defense attorney saw that the judge um, improperly allowed evidence or the jurors improperly did research on their own. You can imagine a million ways this moves forward and even the potential for appeal um, gives the defendant the opportunity to try and negotiate it down because no verdict is ever 100% certain. If there's an opportunity for appeal, anything can happen. That means there's risk. There's risk on both sides. Um, there's certainly less risk now for the patient's family because they were just given a, uh, a nice verdict from, uh, from the jury. 
But if this goes up to an appellate court, it's possible the entire thing would be overturned. I can, I remember one case where, um, and this is, this wasn't professional liability, but it was a whistleblower case with restraint of trade and um, allegations of fraud, et cetera. And a cardiologist, it's called the Polliner case, won several hundred million dollars, um, but never got a chance to cash the check because this went up to the Fifth Circuit, which is an appellate court, and it was overturned. He collected nothing. So, I mean, even eye-popping numbers have the potential to be overturned, but it's it's not typical for an appellate court to overturn a jury verdict, correct? That's right. Um, assuming that all, all went uh, correctly at the trial level. But, you know, the, the option's not binary at the appellate level. It's not, do we enforce the full uh, verdict or do we uh, just uh, negate it and start all over? Uh, appellate court can have the option to scale back or actually increase a verdict. So uh, that also adds some, um, some wild card element to this. But at $30 million, you can guarantee that an appeal is going to take place and that that appeal will take a good bit of time in many states a year or more. Uh, if, if successful, it puts you right back at the beginning of having to do a whole new uh, trial. So oftentimes there are negotiations to take something less than the full amount of the verdict just to move the case along, have some certainty and some finality. Let's say in this particular example, the doctor wanted to settle for policy limits. He just didn't want to go to court and he thought this wasn't a great case. He knew how long he would be um, in the court and didn't like his risk and told his carrier, said, look, I would, I'd like to settle this for policy limits. It's a million dollar policy. I've got some hints that they may be open to settling this. And the carrier comes back and says, Look, based on what your attorney has told us about your case, we think your case is eminently defendable. The experts have opined that this patient was DOA. Yes, he lived uh, two hours after he showed up, but it doesn't matter what heroics anyone in any part of this country, this country would have done. He would have died anyway. Accordingly, while we, we don't think your behavior was exemplary, we think this case is defensible. We think this case is winnable. Um, we don't like the idea of writing a check for a million dollars. What, what do you say? So it becomes a question of whose money are we using when we play poker? And if the, if the defendant here, the physician, has a letter written instructing the insurance carrier and this should be done by some attorney other than the one that is through the defense counsel, um, that has been assigned to the, the physician. A private attorney sends a letter saying, uh, we want the case settled for policy limits or, or less. And there is an opportunity to do that. Well, it doesn't matter if the plaintiff says, look, I'm not taking less than $10 million. Then right. it was never an option to settle it. But let's assume that, the, the, that there was a, a possibility that the case could have been settled. The plaintiff would have taken the policy limits, everybody gone home and it goes to trial and $30 million is hit, now the insurance company is on the hook. It's their money because they're, they made the choice not to settle within policy limits. So everything above and beyond the policy limits 
is their loss now because they were instructed to pay it and get the case over with. They took a chance. They pay the price if they lose. So interestingly enough, but the doctor, the defendant in this case, is still the guy whose name is on the verdict. And ultimately, he's responsible. Now, I'm guessing the the plaintiff and his attorney, they know the doctor likely does not have $30 million, but because of how this was set up, they could turn their enemy into a friend and go after the insurance company, meaning that the doctor obviously does not want to file for bankruptcy, and he potentially has a good faith claim or, or claim bad faith claim against the uh, insurance company. How, how does that, how do the poker chips get rearranged on the table there? What, what well, would typically it, happen at that point? You're exactly right. The, uh, the plaintiff's counsel immediately goes to the defense counsel and says, hope that you've written this type or that this kind of letter was there and that you're going to have an action against the insurance carrier that we will move forward with for you to collect the money. Because much like the old Willie Sutton quote of why do you rob banks? Because that's where the money is. Well, if you're a plaintiff's attorney, where the money is, is the insurance company, not individuals. They're not geared up to try to chase people around and find assets and look under rocks and look for foreign <laughs> bank accounts and all kinds of crap. They want one big check. And that comes from an insurance company and they don't want somebody going bankrupt. So they are highly motivated to go after the insurance carrier on behalf of the defendant physician who they just got an enormous verdict against. So all is not lost in this particular case. I think if we summarize, there are several lessons to be learned. If you're on call, you need to figure out how you will be available. And the notion that you have a schedule of multiple elective cases will likely not look good in court if a very sick patient comes in and you're not available and someone is not available to help you out. I think those are the take-home points uh, right here. Anything you'd like to add before we close, Mike? No, I, I think those are those are great uh, take-home points. And it, God forbid you find yourself in a position of uh, being a defendant in a case where there's big exposure. Have the letter written to put your carrier on notice uh, so you can limit your exposure from a, a wild a jury verdict. I think the final point I'll make is that hospitals can be caught in this dragnet um, if they don't, if they advertise they have availability and there is no one available. So I do think it's it's a good idea for these healthcare systems to pay talented physicians to be available and take call as opposed to just saying, look, the price of, of credentialing here is you just have to take call and that's just too bad. Have a nice day. So I, I do think everybody everybody should have an interest in solving this problem. And on that note, that $30 million note, we bid adieu. Thank you, everyone. We will talk again soon. Before we close, a brief reminder. Don't forget to reach out to Panacea Financial for your banking needs. Panacea's PRN, personal loan, was designed specifically for physicians and physicians in training. Go to panaceafinancial.com and open your new account today. Panacea Financial is a division of Primus member FDIC. And with that, we're at the end of our broadcast. Thanks for joining us. In closing, a few messages. If you're an existing member of medical or dental justice 
and you find yourself on the receiving end of a medical legal threat, please contact us at 1-877-MEDJUST. That's 1-877-MEDJUST or 633-5878. Our STAT hotline is a service offered to all current members. It's designed to get your urgent medical legal questions answered ASAP. Members can also access a plethora of exclusive medical legal resources by logging into their members-only page, which can be accessed by our website, medicaljustice.com. Now, we want to protect as many doctors as possible. If one of your colleagues is in trouble, please refer him. When a current member of Medical Justice refers a colleague and that colleague becomes a member, you both receive a month of free protection. To refer a colleague, write to us at infonews, that's I-N, Epizen Frank O News at medicaljustice.com. That's info news at medicaljustice.com. Now, if you're not an existing member of medical or dental justice, but want to bulletproof your practice from medical legal threats, our admin, Wendy Cates, is your best resource for information about our protection plans, implementation best practices, and pricing models. Wendy can be reached directly at 336 358 5587. We offer discounts for large groups and protect doctors of all specialties in all states. Now, before we close, one last request. If you enjoyed this episode, please write a review on your preferred podcast provider and share our podcast with your colleagues. Reviews help maintain our podcast visibility, which in turn helps us reach a broader audience. This helps us protect more doctors. Thank you for joining us this week. We hope you'll join us on the next episode of the Medical Liability Minute.